Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on this show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they and you could found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about the science, specific science-related topics such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot of and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. There are two main episode types. One, the case study where one or a group of people talk about what they did and you can kind of get a sense of how you could do it as well. To the second type, which is a group talking around a theme such as citric greening, which is coming up soon, or neurodegenerative disorders, which I'm also working on. Please sign up for our newsletter to get a other resources and outside podcast content from guests of my own research, which comes out every Monday. Join us every Tuesday for new podcast releases and check out the website every Thursday for something new. You can find us at, at Lowell here on Twitter, Facebook, and my website, learningwithlowell.com. And don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, and leave a review. It takes really only 10 seconds for you to do any of those things, which helps me and my guests create great content because it gives us feedback. Let's other people know about it, and the more people will know about science and support it, the better everything is. Today we're joined with Amal, founder and CEO of VivoKey Technologies, who was a part of Rebel Bio and has been implanting himself in one form or another since the early 2000s. In this discussion, we talk about implant technology, how hard it is to cut off someone's hand, how secure the implants are in your hand, building a team, finding mentors, his journey up to this point, and where he thinks the future is going. Those are just some of the things you're going to get from this conversation. We do also have a bit of a back and forth on how easy it would be or difficult it would be to remove an implant from someone's hand. Thank you again for joining us today, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let me know if you like this type of content, want a different type of content, or just let me know your thoughts in general. Why implants? If you, I mean, you could have been an accountant, potentially. You could have been uh, a bus driver. Why did you choose as, why did you choose implants as a thing that you were going to dedicate your life to? Uh, you know, it, it really came out of um, two things. One, for whatever reason, I really don't like wearing jewelry. So no ring, no watch, no, you know, nothing. I just tried to wear them and it just ugh, it leaves that weird kind of, you know, watches will leave that ring around your wrist and it's kind of smelly and goopy it just it just creeps me out i don't like it so i just didn't wear anything and, and really can't wear anything and number two um you know i became kind of extremely frustrated about the user experience as it were uh, particularly surrounding keys and doors and locks man there this this whole thing of like you have to carry these keys around they represent you as identity tokens to these systems which are these dumb door locks and you know, how great would it be to just be able to walk up in the door, know that it's you or know that it's me. And I, I was like, you know, there's got to be some way to do that. So I, I started looking at like fingerprint readers, right? And uh, iris scan biometrics, right? The things that actually look at the physical aspects of you as a person, your body. But the problem is the technology then and still kind of today, it's not very reliable. It's clunky. It's expensive. It's not easy to manage. And it's also not great for outdoors. You know, the sensors are sensitive and they don't put up well with the Seattle rain and gloom and, you know, moss and whatever else. So, you know, I, I looked around and I said, well, you know, access cards, those are pretty robust and cheap and reliable, but I don't want to trade a card for a key. It's just, it's not really solving my problem. It's just upping the tech. Man, these these pets, you know, uh, they've been getting these chip implants for decades and those are RFID or a form of it. And so I started looking into it and found a company that would make them, uh, make make different types of chip silicon chips inside of these tags, uh, implantable tags. And so I talked to 
their engineer and basically I was able to get some samples made that had different type of chip in there and one that I could actually buy reader electronics for very cheaply like ten dollars and so I got the chips shipped to me and I got the reader built and I built a little access control system for my office and then when the chips arrived I talked to my doctor who was a client of mine at the time I was doing IT work for clinics and I said hey I got this thing made it's very similar to the type that pets get it's safe Um, I'm confident in its safety so I want to put it in my hand what do you think and he was like Hmm, okay. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. So let's go ahead and do it. And, you know, within, you know, a five minute procedure, I had it done. And then I was instantly using it to get in my door at the office and was like super happy with the result. It was, you know, placed in a part of my hand that's, you know, very, very safe location. There's not many nerves, not many blood vessels there. It's between the index finger and the thumb, that little triangle of tissue, that webbing. And immediately was realizing within a very short period of time that, it was the perfect solution because it required no management. It was frictionless. And essentially, after the little wound healed, uh, which was very quick, I, I kind of forgot that I had it, right? I just started using it as part of my daily routine, and it very quickly became just rote. It was it was like I didn't think, oh, man, I got an implant and I got to do that. No, it was just like I can now just walk up to the door, move my hand past the sensor on the way to the doorknob, and open the door. And it's amazing like that's exactly what i wanted the result to be it's exactly what i got i was super happy how much time do you think you're i mean it'd be hard to quantify the time but if you spend 100 percent of your time and like let's say 10 percent of the time was just doing dumb tasks like opening a door or unlocking keys or like unlocking anything normally how much time do you think you're saving or, or like shaving off that way it's pretty hard to quantify the time. There's definitely the time difference of fishing your keys out of your pocket, getting it in the lock, you know, all that managing. But what I would say is more important to try to quantify is the stress of managing those keys. So for the la- last 12-ish years, I mean, I put it in Mark 2005, so we're, we're coming on well over a decade. I haven't had to worry about where my keys are, right? And that's a much bigger impact to my life than the time it takes to use keys versus the implant. So, you know, normally next time you sit down on your keys, right? Next time you get up, get up from lunch and you're like, do I have my keys? All those moments of like, do I have those things that are so critical to my daily life with me? Did they fall out? Did I forget them somewhere? And then the other half of like, you know, you got this big collection of lumpy metal that you have to, you know, carry around with you. It's not convenient by any sense of the word. So, you know, this this whole burden of management is gone. And so if you if you think about, you call it like the modern day Tomagotchi, the things that you have to manage in a day, the keys, wallet, and phone, those those three things kind of are, are critical to modern modern life. And so I've gotten rid of one third of that management burden for, for over a decade. And now uh, with launching the Vivo Key Technologies company, we're going after wallet. So hopefully I can get rid of my keys and my wallet and also secure my digital identity and, as a whole. Is there like a big disconnect, like from the the things you hear people that are afraid of? Do they are there merits to them? Like are the are the fears justified after they check it out, or is it like you know it's just a dark closet? You don't know what's in there, so you're apprehension of it. But once you try it out, it's like oh no, that there really weren't that big of concerns. Yeah. So <clears throat> in general, once people learn about it, then those fears are abated, and they're abated for uh, different reasons. So, for example. Everybody has a fear of the unknown, right, where you don't really know anything about it. But the reality is chip implants do have a known. uh, People do know about them, 
but it's misinformation. They know about them from sources like Hollywood movies, right? The only education anybody's ever gotten really about chip implants is watching a movie. And every TV show and movie that you see that involves some kind of chip implant is all about tracking a person, like locating them in real time, anytime, anywhere in the world, or killing them remotely, like a Mission Impossible or, or, or the Belco experiment, or somehow you know, firing a missile, or basically turning that implant against the person it's implanted in is the general theme. And so it's kind of misinformation that's out there. And so when you encounter people who, you know, have seen those movies, which is pretty much majority of the population, and then you say, yeah, I got a chip implant, their natural reaction is why uh, it's negative, right? And so, you know, we say, <laughs> have to explain it all the time to people say, well, it's not a tracking device. It doesn't have any power. There's no battery. It doesn't broadcast anything. There's no radio emissions coming from it you know it doesn't work that way fundamentally and technologically speaking it doesn't work that way so you know when we dive into it there's like what do you mean uh, the best and easiest way i can explain it is the chip that your cat and your dog get can't be used to find a lost cat or dog you have to find the dog bring it to a vet they scan it at a very close range with a big scanner you know that's that's the kind of you know technology that we're dealing with only in the human context it's much more secure and it's much more um, relevant to human identity than it is you know pet ownership so the the process of re-educating is a common one but ultimately not that difficult then there's other concerns about you know safety and you know you know obsolescence and all that kind of stuff and there's there's really essentially the way i see it there's no downsides <laughs> the reality is getting a chip implanted in your in your hand or your arm is less risky less painful than an ear piercing. So, you know, if you're taking your preteen daughter to mall and getting ears pierced and think nothing of it, then there's really no, you know, there, there should be no concern about uh, getting an actual chip implant because with an ear piercing, for example, you put holes through tissue, you hang a metal rod through that through those holes and it tries your body tries to heal around it for days and days, which during that time your risk of infection is quite high versus a chip implant which takes a matter of seconds wound is healed over or scabbed over in a matter of hours your risk of infection drops almost immediately so all of these factors it just in my mind it's like why wouldn't you do this to be able to increase your functionality as a human being increase your capabilities for something that's you know less painful than a, a blood draw or an ear piercing and less risky it's it's like a no-brainer i like the application of having like medical records on it so that in you know, an emergency let's say you have some type of I don't know, special allergy or something like that that the doctors would need to know. Like, you're not able to communicate that in, in a lot of those situations, but yet that information can be really critical to saving your life. So I definitely see the value of, in just that limited way, where I, I, I would think it'd have a really big impact on saving people's lives, just being able to, like, have all the information there for the doctors to make informed decisions uh, and ultimately things that would save your life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the medical records application is, is uh, something we've, are exploring and have explored um, portable medical records, for example, and, and the patient identity. And at the moment, at least in the U.S. and larger, more developed, you know, nations, the problem is that there's always this huge regulatory hurdle uh, and the fact that no, um, you know, there's no way that we could make it so universal so so quickly that that EMTs and doctors would know where to scan or what to scan, right? So. Um, so there, there are some people that have bought um, chips from Dangerous Things so far, and they do put their medical information on. But the problem is awareness and, and like a protocol, right? There is no protocol for scanning this stuff. And so we're actually exploring it in smaller countries that have uh, kind of less developed medical uh, systems, right? 
They have maybe dis- disjointed or dis- disconnected EMRs and stuff. And so being able to do it in a smaller region where you can get a good percentage of coverage and, a, and establish an, a protocol that isn't you know, fraught with you know, objections and reg- regulatory hurdles, that's, that's something to try out and that we're definitely trying to explore. I imagine if, it, if you're going to these more smaller countries that it, it can't be that expensive to produce. So it, or, or is it, is it like, is it like deceptive when it comes to that? So like even like the smallest country can kind of take advantage of this technology in regards to, you know, having medical records, having people have access to this information or basically what I'm asking, do you think there's like the equivalent of a paywall with this type of technology? Uh, no, not really. And so one of the great things about it is that, um, you know, it's not it's not extremely cheap. Like, uh, you know, it's not something where, you know, we, we retail our XNT uh, NFC compatible implant for $99 US, which for some other countries where the exchange rate is terrible or the cost of living is low, then that might be a, a, a hurdle that can't be overcome. However, when you're talking about um, you know, VivoKey, VivoKey Technologies using the same type of implant development, but our approach is different. Our approach is not saying, here's an NFC implant customer, you know, biohacker, you know, tech hobbyist. Um, you you know what to do with it. You you can build your own access controller or whatever. Go and, and use our implant and go build your own solutions. That 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 model is um, fine for those people, but when you're talking about like a medical records thing or something, then the cost of the actual implant becomes immaterial uh, because what you're focused on is developing and deploying a system, right? And so when you're dealing with something that might cost to produce, you know, um, 20 bucks to 50 bucks, depending on whatever per unit per person, but but the value in exchange for um, you know medical systems cost, right? So the time and lives that you're saving and the money that you're saving ultimately in um, you know mismanaged medical records or um, death, uh, wrongful death uh, liability claims. Um, I mean, these things happen in the medical industry. Um, between seven to ten percent of medical records are either duplicated or split between multiple records. And those are dangerous situations because you'll have a situation where you know Dr. A prescribes drug A to to the patient on one medical record, and then Dr. B prescribes another drug and puts that on the second split medical record. And you, neither doctor sees the other drug, and so there could be an interaction that's lethal um, between the two drugs, and that that happens. Uh, quite often. And so surgeries and information will go on, get split up between multiple records, and then the patients um, put at risk because of that. So having this system where you can have a universal patient identifier that's identifier uh, that, that can be uh, one, consolidate medical records, but also to help identify multiple records that the patient might have and bring them together to consolidate them. That's um, that's all something that we are, are focused on. And the cost or the, the savings of, of being able to do that far outweigh the actual implant cost. Mm-hmm. Especially peace of mind. Like you, you, in the beginning, we're talking about not having like keys poking you and just having the ease of not having to like jungle that. But when it comes to knowing that's there and you don't have to worry about it, I mean, that's huge. Like I, I've been in the hospital a number of times and med- <laughs> my medical file is quite thick, so I would not want to carry that around wherever I go. So, But I know people who do, so it's just like having it all there and accessible. I think it's going to be really key moving forward. I think it's a transition we're probably going to make eventually. I, I think I don't. It's about yeah. Yeah, it's definitely about for for us. It's about finding applications that are compelling across the gamut of the mass market, right? So key replacement alone is not compelling for a lot of people. Um, medical records, portable medical record data com- alone is not compelling for people. So the key for us is to develop 
uh, you know, take it to the next level. So that's, again, Vivo Key Technologies is about new generation, next generation implants that are secure, that are more capable, and they're tied in and integrated with systems that impact people's lives in positive ways. So not just key replacement, not just wallet replacement, not just medical records, uh, but all of those things and more. So, uh, you know, running, you know, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin wallets, data encryption, decryption systems, so you can secure your computers, like secure your communications, and essentially secure your your digital identity in your life is the ultimate goal. So, so again, putting the power in the in the actual person, focusing on the real people and not the methods of bridging those technologies. Um, one of the things that's a for example, right, is um, you know everybody has this digital identity, which is a, a conglomeration or, or amalgam of all of the profiles and accounts and everything that you create online, your Facebook, your Twitter, your bank account, you know all this stuff. But they're all secured with terrible, terrible username and password technology, which we all know doesn't work, right? So when you have an account compromise uh, or something like that, you, there's this disconnect. It, it's there's a separation between you and your real person you and all your tokens right your identity tokens so again all your accounts online are nothing more than the keys on your wallet on your keychain and your cards in your wallet they're yet another form of identity token that represents you but there's this gap between all of those things and the real person that is you so whoever has the key it has the power of you whoever has your card or your wallet has the power whoever is your username and password has the power of you and we want to bring that back uh, bridge the gap you know, between you and all of those things. And that's what uh, in vivo technologies, you know, developed at VivoKey are, are all about. There's just like this, on PCs, you can have this, I don't know, like key system where it won't even start up if you don't have it in. So it's kind of like that in, in, in essence. So like someone, even if someone, you know, trying to fraud you half, half the globe away can't access your stuff because they don't have the thing in your hand, making it even more secure. And at the same time, solidifying, you know, the maybe hopefully not hundreds of different identity tokens we have online to instead have one, I think would, you know, make it more secure just on that front alone, because you, know, you have to make a different, you know, email. I mean, just email pass, just think about email, you know, a different name and password. And hopefully like the person can't guess that, which, you know, they can, like you said, it kind of reminds me of, of, you know, uh, I don't know how much you know about um, ecology and like how people manage wildlife. But sometimes there's like on a on an island there are like too many rats, so then they release cats, and then the, there's too many cats, and they release dogs, and there's too many dogs. <laughs> like it, it that kind of sounds like this the the problem that you're trying to solve, right? Like it, like we have this issue of having too many tokens because there's so many things we want to do, and yet we want to be secure about them, and yet it's kind of like you got a rat, so you release cats, and then you release yeah, exactly. dogs, so. It's similar, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's badly thought out, um, you know, solutions, quote unquote, to the to the problem. And uh, yeah, so passwords in general. I mean, ideally, um, Vivo Key, The aim of VivoKey is to get rid of passwords completely, not just act as a two factor, but actually replace them and uh, replace passwords completely. So you know, again, bringing the focus away from the username and password that represent you to you actually being the important part of the equation. Um, and that, that focus on you to some people might just seem like a logical leap, right? Well, it's an implant, but that doesn't mean it's you, right? Um, biometrics like fingerprints or DNA, that means you. And, and in reality, a fingerprint or a biometric is actually worse than a password. And the reason is that, you know, your body is analog there. There's no, your body cannot do 
cryptography, encryption, decryption, right? So the fingerprints, the DNA, anything that's sampleable, your face, the way you walk, anything anything that could get posted to Facebook by accident or on purpose uh, can be replicated and duplicated. And the technologies that are able to do that are getting better and better just as biometrics are trying to uh, trying to get better at detecting them. But we're, we're, we're far outweighing the ability to impersonate a person, uh, their biology of a person, the way they sound, the way they move, the way they talk. I mean, there's you know systems now where a computer can sample someone's voice and then you type in the text and it talks as them and, uh, and it's perfect. There's you know whole systems where you track uh, one person's face and you overlay that onto another uh, and you can make the president say crazy things in their own voice. And I mean, these, you know, you can pull finger piece police are, are, are pulling, you know, snapshots uh, off of WhatsApp and other messenger you know, things that, you know, people, I think some recently a drug drug deal guy had some pills in his hand and he took a picture and sent it to a potential client and the police got that picture and they pulled his fingerprint off the photo and then got, went and got him. Right. So, um, and police are even doing things like taking fingerprint records you know, old 2D paper um, fingerprint records and 3D printing fake thumbs in order to open phones. And it's working, right? So the idea of a biometric being some kind of secure identity token uh, that represents you is terrible. Um, so the the answer is cryptography. But cryptography in, in the past has always been complex, hard to use. Uh, and also, you know, stored elsewhere, stored on a computer, which could be hacked, stored in a phone, which could be hacked or lost or stolen. And what we're saying is take the power of cryptography and move it in vivo and make it super simple and easy to use. So by putting it inside of you, there's this fundamental psychological and philosophical difference from having it in a token that you have to manage and worry doesn't get lost or stolen, right? So um, being being literally a part of you in a frictionless, managementless device something you don't have to think about. It's it's get, literally giving your body and you the power of cryptography um, in every sense of the word. So, you know, what I what I like to compare it to is, you know, we design our, our, our implant products to be frictionless and managementless, to be perfectly integrated, meaning they're like your kidneys. Your kidneys are inside your body. They're working hard. They're doing life-critical stuff for you, but you don't even give them a second thought. And that's exactly how we want our products to be when you leave it in your body does your body ever start eating it or do anything with it or is it like do you encase it in something that stops the body from doing stuff like that because i know if you have like wood in your in your like a splinter your body will start kind of trying to stick it out there so yeah of course yeah the the uh the ejection system so uh no the we we use a type of uh we, we have two different types of products two families one is a flexible biopolymer and the other is a glass tube encasement. And so the glass tube encasement borrows heavily from the pet chip um, industry. So they, they've been around for decades. You know, billions of them have been put into animals with no problems. Uh, and so we, we borrow heavily for those products. And those are the ones that are put typically between the index finger and thumb. And uh, the, the, the glass is a very specific type of glass. And it's not 100% inert. The body does recognize it. Uh, but its reaction to it is to encapsulate it with collagen which is exactly what we want it to do. We want the body to form a little capsule of collagen around the implant. And what that does is it secures it so it doesn't move around. It doesn't migrate under the skin. We want it to stay put where we put it. And so that that kind of um, interaction with the body is is perfectly designed to do exactly what we want. And then just stays there. So the implant that I have in my left hand was put in in March 2005. It's been there working perfectly since then. So 
and I expect it to be there well after my death and just be dust and, and, and chips in the coffin. Is there any concern about people like coming in and like hand, <laughs> I'm not going to say that, like uh, stealing it? Yeah, I think probably one of the more morbid immediate reactions from people is, what if they cut off your hand? Uh, and, and I said, well, yeah, I mean, first of all, there's so many answers to that question, but first, the first thing is, do you really think it's that easy to cut off someone's hand that like a random person is just going to come up and try to, I mean, have you ever seen 127 hours? It's, it's pretty hard to actually cut off a hand, (laughs) but, uh, anyway, the, the point is, yeah, sure. Let's assume that that's the case. Well, what's the motivation, right? Like for, for me, like my car has been broken into four times. I use my implant to get into the car. Uh, but for them, breaking the window is much easier, right? Like, it just depends on the level of who you are as an individual. Are you in control of the nuclear launch codes for some reason tied to your implant? Then sure, that might be a risk. But in reality, like the average person, nobody's going to care enough to want to do that. In, in fact, 99% of all crime that's going to happen to you, the person committing the crime would prefer not to even interact with you, right? They're going to make sure you're not home to, to then break in your front door and go rob you. Like there's just, there's a huge, you know, risk to reward ratio that taking the time and effort to cut off your hand. I mean, you might as well just shoot the person and kill them to attain whatever it is you want to obtain at that point. Cause you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't click. It does, there's, there's no connection there. What would be the value, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't think someone would cut their hand off. I, I would think they'd just hold you down and take it out a little. I, I wouldn't think that, like, my thought wouldn't have been cut the guy's hand off to get the tiny chip. <laughs> it just seems like, that's like, hey, there's a house fire. Let's bomb the neighborhood. <laughs> like I know, right? Exactly. It's way overkill. And and But by the same token, there's not a lot of logical difference between forcibly removing the chip from somebody and cutting their hand off. You know, it's still a massive assault and requires time and effort and, um, you know, requires the person being attacked to just kind of allow it to happen, I guess. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's 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 not too far off the difference um, versus you know versus uh, all the other forms of attack that are totally possible like um, you know the the you know breaking windows to get into places homes cars whatever um, just waiting for you to take the money out of the ATM and just say give me the money like you know this is there's there's so many better ways to achieve the goals of a personal attack like that and that that brings up the other thing the attack vector right. 99.9% of attacks uh, on the cloud, in the internet, and um, all, all, sometimes in person are, are random. You know, they just randomly attack, uh, you know, people. So, for example, I'll give a great example. There's there's um, people that were talking about the original, the first, very first tap and pay cards, credit cards that had little RFID antennas in them where you just tap them and walk. So, there's a lot to talk about there, but we'll just start with the attack vectors, right? So, people were just waiting around in bus stations and public areas with big scanners and bags and just trying to grab credit cards of random people walking by. So those are random encounters, right? You're not attacking a specific person to to take uh, that particular person's credit card number, right? Um, because they don't need to. They could just use credit card numbers and go use them anywhere to buy stuff. And so there's there would be somebody that was going to try to physically remove a chip from you would be coming after you specifically, a targeted specific attack. And again, in those situations, my bet is the person wanting to attack you in some way uh, is not going to want to identify themselves by doing it in person and physically removing things like that. I mean, it's just whatever their goal is, 
it's such a slim possibility that that to, the only way for them to achieve their goal is to actually physically remove the chip from you, like whatever that goal is. Like if their goal is to completely own your digital and physical life, uh, then <laughs> sure, maybe. But what what is the purpose of that? Again, is it why, why <laughs> you know, if they want to do that, then um, there would probably just be easier ways to do it, including just murdering you. <laughs> You know, and then stay like it doesn't. And at that point, it doesn't matter that there's a chip or not. Like they could just that that would be the goal, regardless of the chip. So, um, you know, trying trying to do this thought experiment of under what conditions would it make sense for an attacker to physically attack you and remove the chip? Um, and then of course there's all the other protections that would go in. We we actually have tamper protection designs that we're working on. Uh, that would detect removal, we, but there's also the standard stuff like pin code and and crypto key interactions. So the chip alone, um, you know, would be very difficult to be used by an attacker. Um, certain scenarios, like maybe physical access to a specific um, car or a specific home, sure, it's not going to require a pin. Uh, in, in most cases, you could you could probably make a system that did. But again, that would be a very specific attack, and the goal of getting into a house. Um, that, that you wouldn't need the chip. You just break a window or something. Like there's no, you know, again, unless you're manager of Fort Knox, right, or some kind of weird, bizarre thing where the reward is so high that the risk is worth trying to physically assault you and remove your chip. I mean, if you're that important, you probably have a bodyguard. Well, my my thoughts would be it's like pickpocketing, right? Like no one would before there were wa- wallets and things that you keep in your pocket that are valuable. No one would do pickpocketing. But now there are people who can pickpocket you and you won't even know it. So I think it's just a matter of opportunity. So if they're, if you have all of, if you have the opportunity of being able to steal everything that is a person on their hand, then there also is that opportunity for like, you know, like fraud is a $40 billion industry in the United States where it's not like a good industry, but like people do that. So like, as long as there is that opportunity to, you know, I don't know, leech and be a parasite off of another person like that, you're always going to get someone who wants to pickpocket you. And there's always those there's always those fun videos where uh, a person can like literally take someone's watch with like as they're talking to them and they they can't even tell they're doing it. How many of those billions of fraud cases involve physical assault? Well, I don't think you'd have to physically be assaulted. I think you could. I think you could probably take it from someone's hand without them knowing. Well, take it out of their skin without yeah. them knowing. Yeah, I mean, you could. That would be impressive. Well, there's there's things that can numb, like cocaine, for instance. I mean, if we were if we were, I don't want to talk about this, but like cocaine, for instance, could numb the area, or you could use like some type of enzyme, and then as they're distracted, you just slowly cut it and take it out. Like if you know where it is, and you have an idea, if you're, I, I would be I would be very impressed if that that would take a level of engagement that I think would even put Darren Brown at at a, at a tough a tough spot. It's really just about opportunity. Like the more, and I think it's one of those things that's going to get more and more prevalent. But again, yeah. So so here's the thing, though. Pickpockets and all of those fraud cases, they involve the person not knowing that it's happened, right? So the critical part is of a pickpocket victim is that the pickpocketer is able to get away and, again, use something that is representative of them but not really connected to them. So the credit card, for example, right, to buy stuff. They can just buy stuff and then get out of there and it's fine. But the value of, of – Taking over, like, a ra- and again, assuming this is a random attack. So some some opportunity comes up where you're like, this guy's got a chip and I want to completely own this person's life. You know, um, the m- amount of effort, technically, I, I, I mean, for, for one, a, a healed chip, which takes about 30 days after installation, a fully healed encapsulated chip is not just a simple matter of cutting it out. It's, it's you make a small incision and then you actually have to 
physically ablate that 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 um, uh, encapsulation, right? The the collagen and fibrin tissue you have to physically ablate it. So to for a doctor to remove it um, in a lab setting where there's no the person's not moving around and whatever, um, that that takes like five good solid minutes of of work to to get it worked out um, with by by a surgeon, right? So some random pickpocketer. They're probably going to do it, assuming this is happening. It's funny, we're diving down this rabbit hole, but uh, assuming that that was going to be a, a, a mission of opportunity, um, you know, they would probably just try to like hack the shit out of somebody's arm to like take it out, not doing a nice job, but just like, you know, like taking a huge chunk of tissue out uh, and then running away. And then the person going, oh my God, I've got a huge chunk of you know, tissue missing. I mean, immediately there's going to be repercussions and then the person's, the value of that chip in public use. So for example, payments, right? Payments on a tap and pay card or Apple pay card, you, you, you tap the thing and you walk, but there's a limit on the number of dollars you can spend. Um, there's a potential of re- requiring a pin code entry to validate larger purchases than X number of dollars. The ultimate, ve- you know, the, for a random attacker, you're not going to know, who, what email address that token is tied to. You're not going to have the pin code to activate the OTP generation. You, the value of a random attack is going to be quite terrible. So the only thing that, so again, it, I mean, the, the effort and the value don't match up. The only thing that would make any real sense would be a very, again, a very specific targeted attack. Um, and in a situation where a person of value of that, that, that has that much value attached to it, um, they're going to have other countermeasures involved for security, and they're probably, you know, ideally the attacker would not want that person to know uh, that they had been compromised. And you're going to know if your chip has been cut out of your body. Um, so, again, I'm just not seeing an alignment. Well, you, you said before that you wanted it to be kind of like your kidney working passively in the background and you don't really think about it. And people hmm. steal other people's kidneys. So I think that's probably all you have to think right. about, right? Like, right. But when, like, you're, it's, it's when you not, wake up and your kidney's missing, it's uh, yeah. well, quite is it, obvious. Is it possible to clone one? Like, if you were to go by and like scan it somehow and like clone it, is that like something that could happen? Like, make a, like a copy so and then use that. The standard like RFID access badges and crap that's used around those are totally clonable, not very secure. Our our system is extremely secure because when it goes in and you are it's a fresh install right when you first engage it and you say okay i want to load a like let's say a bitcoin wallet app right so you want to run a bitcoin wallet and you could have your millions of dollars in bitcoin there well the app itself will internally generate the key pairs so the private key will never ever leave that device right so the so there's no way for the somebody to walk up and come along and say "Ooh, i'm going to get your private key so i can uh, open your bitcoin wallet it's, it, it will, does not fundamentally does not work that way. So, you know, Bitcoin transaction information will go into the implant for signing, right? Um, and then that implant will use a private key internally to do some cryptography and generate a transaction signature and then kick that back out. But it'll only do that for uh, paired apps that have, you know, signed requests and blah, blah, blah. So there's, there's layers upon layers of standards-based encryption uh, and cryptography techniques to ensure that the implant only honors valid requests and it will never hand over the keys to that wallet. Yeah, I, I feel like that's probably where you should go instead of like explaining how improbable it is. I feel like just being like, even if it were to happen, we're, you're taken care of. 
<laughs> we got you. <laughs> like, you, like, you know, like, we could get into the statistics on how improbable it would happen, but even if they were to try it. The, the reason they even dive into it is because it's the first, like, people, peop, it's the, probably the number two most asked question. What if they cut off your hand? Which essentially is the same as cutting it out or cutting off your hand or whatever, but physically removing it from you is, is the question. And uh, so I'm always interested in diving into the the practicalities of such things. And that's, I guess, where I get hung up on the most is the difference between technically possible and practical, right? So technically, we could make a rope big enough to go around the moon and literally lasso the moon, but practical? No. Like, there's practical impossibilities about actually doing that. Well, it's kind of it's kind of like saying, I don't know, since it's something that you're interested in, because I'm thinking of it logically as well, and like, and seeing the opportunity for, for someone to steal it. It's, it's, you know, it's like in the it's like with rockets, like with Elon Musk, like, you know, you got some rockets and they're, they're expensive. And so there's not a lot of them and there's not a lot of people going into space. But as, as the cost goes down and there's more of them going out there, like, you know, more opportunities will come up. Sure. It's not likely today. Like, I think your argument, like, it's not likely today is pretty sound, but I think eventually as the use goes up, there will be people, even if they don't know any better, like some dumb, um, dumb person, it's just, you know, does it like, it'll probably happen. It doesn't mean it'll be successful. This is this is the other this is the other thing to point out is in those examples like Elon Musk and rockets and everything they're similar there are quote rockets but the technology has evolved and that's the key right so right now we don't have tamper protection for example removal detection but it's not relevant right now so Elon Musk is not sending space shuttles up and, and landing them he's sending out new better designed things so and again even in the rope scenario Sure, a standard fibers-based rope is Im- completely impractical and impossible, if you want to call it that. But a nanofiber, like whatever, it's technically rope-like, but it's not. It, it's wholly different on the technological level. And so, again, you're you're correct. But I'm, what I'm getting at is today, the the practicality doesn't line up. But tomorrow it might. But the technology will be evolved as well to be able to have better indicators. Uh, of of um, uh, you know proof of life and removal detection all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we're on the same page. It's like today, no, you know, like it's it's not like it's like stealing a rocket. You're 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 n- why and then how would you <laughs> right. do it? Right. That's basically right. what we're saying. And what are you gonna do with it? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was just you know, like I was kind of playing devil's advocate, like thinking. Sure. So when would I want to steal a rocket? It's like I guess if there's enough of them. Or if your or if your goal is to uh, steal it uh, uh, only to. Uh, to evoke a reaction, you're not actually going to do anything with a rocket. You just steal it to, to evoke some reaction that ultimately benefits you in some way. So, yeah, there's there's all kinds of bizarre potential what ifs, but um, you know, the thought experiment only need go so far today. Yeah, no, I think that's probably your biggest thing. It's like even even if I think that's the, the biggest argument you have for that is that even if it were in a completely unrealistic way today, you still have systems in place. It's not like it's not something that you're like. This isn't an issue, so we're going to leave that open. Like, you still have taken measures to make it secure because that's something you'd want. At least that's from what I, from what I hear. Maybe I, I misheard. But, like, I think, like, it's like you're focused on making it the best thing. And as certain, like, you can't make everything 100%. And I think that's probably the thing that you have to deal with all the time. Like, people think it has to be perfect when you're trying to make the right things perfect in the right sequence. So this is something that people would want to adopt as early as possible and have it impact and influence their lives and they make money as like a company and stuff. So it's like, I get like, you can't go everywhere at the same time. It's like when, uh, I don't know, we're going to mention Elon Musk for like the fourth time, but like when he put that, put that, that, that car in the top of the rocket and people are like, Oh, why didn't you put like some research in there? It's like, 
he didn't even know it was going to work. And two, right. it's his rocket, right? right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, what's more, like, for, like, a science person, okay, that makes sense. But for someone who doesn't know science, putting a rocket, putting a, a car in a rocket evokes imagination. And, right. it, like, it makes the people The value dream. of that is yeah. higher. Than... You got to do the right things in the right sequence so people can get on board. I think it sounds like you're doing it. Do you do any, like, open source things when it comes to, like, making other applications? Do you let other people kind of play with what you're doing? Like, I don't know, we keep mentioned Elon Musk where like he he's like making like the railroad to connect like the east coast to the west coast but he has no intention of building up the west coast so are you it seems like you're kind of like building the railroad and you're building up the west coast at the same time but have you thought about just building the railroad over versus versus doing both yeah so a little bit so in in the software realm open source uh, there's there's definitely a um, kind of community effort going on so <clears throat> what i found in the past is if you make a thing, you build a railroad, right? And you're fully expecting uh, other people to kind of take up the, the the mantle, as it were, and build, you know, sub legs and other things off of that railroad and kind of utilize it and build their own stuff. That that actually takes a very um, almost ethereal uh, understanding of people's motivations and aligning it all properly. And it's a very much a social experiment at that point to, to make a project successful. And so, um, you know, what we're trying to do is is lay down the track, but also like build our own little towns off of the track, you know. And then with by that example, hopefully there will be enough critical mass that that other people will also start developing. So, so for example, in a very real sense. Uh, we have a product called VivoKey Flex, which is the full smart card secure element in Vivo device, right? And we allow, we partner with a company called Fidesmo to allow developers that want to develop their own Java card applets to run on it. They can totally do that. They just sign up for a developer account with Fidesmo, publish their app, they download it on their VivoKey. Um, we also develop applications for it uh, of our own. Um, so, you know, we have an OTP code generator that uses, um, you know, OAuth code token generators and we have a bitcoin wallet we're working on and pgp applet and all this stuff and all of those applets are open source you know people can look at the code and compile and all that if they want so uh, we, we do open source our applications but also we encourage developers to to do their own as well making the other people work for you a little bit which is i always i always like to as i always like to find ways to or like listen to ways that other people willingly do things to help you and they don't realize it or they realize it. Yeah. And it, it's, it all about, it's all about mutual uh, benefit, right? So it's, it's developer has an idea and they would say, Oh, I, I would love to, for, for example, I'll give another example. So we, we are also developing an identity platform that has an API for it. Um, so um, for example, if, if somebody says, well, I got a WordPress blog and I would love to log into that WordPress admin section using my implant, um, they can totally develop a WordPress plugin and just integrate with our API, and we handle all the rest of it, the, the, the part that actually interacts with the implant. So they don't have to worry about that part. They just keep focused on what they know, which is WordPress. Um, so that's an example of it's beneficial for them, but then once the, once the, the plugin is out there, um, then other, other WordPress users can use it. And if, it, if a person that actually does want to use it to log into WordPress develops it, they understand the user experience really well, right? So hopefully they're going to make that plugin to have a great user experience. 
something that actually makes sense for for using it. You keep saying we, and I assume it's not the royal we. So who all part is your team? <laughs> so right now we have myself, Mike Montalvo, is CTO. He's he's developing core technologies. We have uh, Ashley Buckingham. He's doing code development and kind of a marketing strategic partnership. So I like to call it tactical marketing. And then we have a couple other people that we're we're working with that are doing kind of like playing sweeper and we're, we're trying to sort out where they fit in the ecosystem at the moment. And then we also have contract engineers and factory people that we contract for, for manufacturing specific parts of, of our devices. How did you build the team? Like how, how did you know to pick the right people? Like, did you have mentors helping you out? Like, yeah, the, the, we definitely have mentors. So, so Viva Key, um, we started the company uh, last part of, of, uh, of 2017. So no, November, early December, can't remember the exact date. Um, but uh, but essentially we I I took my whole uh, family off to London and we participated in SOSV backed Rebel Bio Accelerator program there. Um, so we lived in London for three and a half almost four months. We just got back to the states uh, and, and I'm resetting up the lab and stuff here. But uh, through that process, you know, I was able to um, it, it evaluate different team members, get mentor input, all that kind of stuff. But rea- in reality, the team really came together. Based on, I'm pretty sure all of them are customers of my previous company, Dangerous Things. Uh, so they all have implants already. They're passionate about implants. They want to make uh, their implants work better and, and more um, with more integrations and more more um, security. Uh, so you know they they were kind of you know you look at you look at different companies and you have. Um, different levels of, of people at different positions. And so you, you might have a company that's built up of like A++, you know, this guy worked for all these, you know, the CTO worked for all these things and all these different companies and they have huge amount of experience and and uh, now they're at, at XYZ Corp, right, doing this thing. And the CEO has a different, you know, collection of top tier, pro, you know, they worked at Google and they were a Facebook engineer, all this stuff. And so you have these kind of like A++, you know, team teams on these companies. And, that that can work great for those companies, um, but the the it's it's kind of like a sports team where you you've drafted people and you bought your players and you assembled a team and you you might make it to the Super Bowl you might not but team the, the team members don't really care about the team right next year they could get traded or whatever it's just they just do their they care about playing right and um, and so when it comes to this you know when it comes to something that's so leading edge implants and the future of humanity right. These are the questions and the things we talk about, right? It's not like, oh, what's this sales chart from last yesterday? That that level of passion and commitment to what it is we're doing will keep people invested through the startup phase, phase, you know, well beyond that. So that's being in the startup phase is it's critical that our team members be good at what they're doing, which they are, but they but they are even more importantly, they have to be passionate about why we're doing it, and and these team members are. That's excellent. Where do you go? And maybe it was all just from Rebel Bio, but is there a spot you go to find people like that are like that that are interested in? Because because uh, people interested in startups is kind of a a smaller segment of people that can handle that risk. So is there like a specific area you go to to find them? Not really. I mean, there's there's like founderdating.com and like you know all these different kind of startup blah blah and founders market and like um, you know. I, but what I found by and large is those environments are filled with uh, founders looking for developers. <laughs> they're not looking for co-founders. They're looking for, you know, I need somebody to make my thing happen. Um, and so, you know, it's great to be a developer these days. Holy crap. 
um, you know, software developers are in high demand. But um, <clears throat> you know, for for me, I was very lucky, I think, because I was able to take this, um, you know, this kind of very early stage, early technology, and find people that were, you know, willing to to not only take the the risk of kind of um, betting on an early early tech. Um, but also get get really passionately involved in in why this is important and beyond just I want to put an implant in so I can replace my key. You know, they philosophically are identifying with what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so there there is a community of uh, of you know, for lack of a better term, biohackers. You know, and that community is small but growing. And out of that community, you know, I, I we you start interacting with people and you start seeing who's involved and engaged in that community, who's who's making comments, how you know how they approach. Um, solving problems, for example, and other things. So, I, I guess the the place that I went for for co-founders was um, the 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 small community, which by and large are also customers of mine that have chips already. Do you think about equity as an incentive to get people to stay around, or like how do you? Because I, I think that's one of those things that people don't know how to manage very well. Like how to? I know there's like YC has some pretty interesting ideas on how they think founders and stuff should allocate equity around. But I, I'm wondering if you found any rules of thumb or things that have worked for you? Yeah, I mean, equity is 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 definitely a factor, right? Um, maybe not as an important factor. Uh, again, if you if you find people that are actually really passionate about why you're doing it or why you're doing a thing, and they totally envision themselves wanting to use the thing that you're making and seeing themselves using it in new, better ways, you know, that's the critical factor. But the equity um, question is. Is definitely important. I mean, the the common mistake I think is um, just like you have five team members and you divvy it up equally, right? Like that's terrible. That's a terrible idea, um, and it's terrible for multiple reasons. So you know, one of the things that um, that was interesting going through the Rebel Bio program is right up front they said you need an um, employee stock option program, and so that's like setting aside equity um, to be to be divvied up later. But then you also have to address questions of um, liquidity and, and um, dilution and all of these things. And so uh, a, a, a for example, and, and how you handle that as a CEO, right, is important as well. So I'll give an example. Um, you know, ha- almost three quarters of the way through the program, um, I had a, a, a friend who I've been working with for, for forever. Um, she was working very hard on you know, getting all the uh, financials in place, and uh, and we were exploring the idea of merging dangerous things and Vivo Key, and and when that should happen, at what point, um, it made sense from a tax filing and all this other standpoint. So she's putting all this effort in, and then Rebel Bio and and SOSV started throwing financial questions and projections and things at me, and I'm like, okay, this is terrible. So I started bringing her in um, on those things because I, I I hate those parts, right? I just don't, my brain doesn't work well in those ways. Um, so getting a proper team member on board that can handle that perfectly is, is, is critical. So as we started talking, I said, well, what about, what about bringing you on as CFO? Is that something you have time for? She's also committed as, you know, she's, she worked in crazy places like Lockheed Martin and like all this like high security stuff doing, doing crazy accounting there. And uh, so I mean, I'm like saying, hey, do you want to start this scrappy little startup with me? Uh, but the decision to ec- divvy up equity at that point I'd already had co-founders on the cap table. I already had all this stuff, and we weren't even done with the, um, you know, accelerator program. When I was like, "Well, how about you come on a CFO, and we'll we'll get you some equity." So I made a decision at that point, um, rather than put her in uh, and take uh, equity out of the stock option program, which would then require refilling at the next stage and then dilute everybody. I just cut out a chunk of equity from my 
um, chunk, my, my stake, and allocated that to her so that the other co-founders that were already in, on board weren't diluted. And so that decision, um, I, I talked it over with everybody and I said, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to bring her on. But to protect you guys, I want, I'm going to do this this way. And um, I think that builds credibility with your team as well because you you're, you're showing them that their, their equity and their feelings and their, how they're treated at this early stage really, really matters. Um, so, you know, rather than, you know, you guys being on board for three months and then suddenly there's a dilution event for you, uh, by bringing on more team members, that's terrible. That's a terrible, um, thing to, to, to have to face. So, um, yeah, this just, it, equity is an important thing and pr- putting the proper, um, vesting and, bring, b- you know, before bringing on co-founders, even before starting the vesting process, I highly recommend doing like a, uh, like a trial period, I guess it would be better described as like an an unpaid internship <laughs> where you kind of evaluate uh, everything gets evaluated there. And then at the end of that period um, you can, you can explore the option of um, bringing on a co-founder and, uh, and assigning vested equity on um, the vest over time. But at some point you're going to, you're going to close off what I would say, close off or end the, the founder stage team building. And then um, future employees might uh, come on board uh, in exchange for equity or something, but there, there, you can opt to give founders a special, um, special status, I guess, by by allowing them to be more deeply involved, um, somewhat like board members, but um, almost elevated from the board a bit. Um, it really depends on how you want to structure it, but there are there are founder agreements um, that go kind of uh, above and beyond the the standard um, you know operating agreement or, or bylaws of the company. Where do you go to learn that type of stuff? Because I, I assume you just didn't like hatch from the egg with that knowledge. It's, uh, I mean, going through an accelerator program helps a lot because they they crash course probably uh, uh, probably the first two years of MBA stuff into three months, right? And uh, the, it's highly stressful, but highly worth it. And uh, you know, the, there's a ton of reading you could probably do, but until you actually talk with mentors, like people that that get it and can answer your questions. For example, I probably annoyed the hell out of their lawyer, <laughs> their SOSV uh, VC lawyer. Uh, I was lo- vaulting questions at them uh, on a daily basis for a good solid two weeks and, uh, and then Skyping them like in the middle of their, like 11 PM their time. I'm like, Hey, uh, before I sign this thing, what about this, this, and this, you know, it was, it was a, you know, a very <laughs> intense period of, uh, of learning for me and uh, probably annoyance for them. But, um, but yeah, people are probably the most important resource. Um, you can read a lot on the internet, but so much of it is not written to educate a layman, right? There's, there's assumptions people and biases people make when they're writing that they don't intend to, but they just do. And so, you know, you'll read a thing, you'll read it 10 times and you think you get it and you don't. <laughs> so, uh, or you don't fundamentally understand it. Right. Um, it's like the difference between, oh man, it, you know, I had this, I had this aunt that you, you, she did this computer stuff. Like she was working on the computer in the office and would know all these programs and everything. And she would know, you'd ask her a question. How do you get to here? She would know the exact order of steps click here, click here, click here. But if you, if you asked her a question, it was like 99% similar, but deviated at all from those steps. She wouldn't know because she understood the steps. She didn't understand the fundamentals of why those steps were important. She just knew the steps. So reading stuff on the internet about this stuff is like reading the steps, but not knowing why those steps are important. And so you won't, won't really gain critical knowledge. You'll just gain, you know, some knowledge 
about how that particularly worked in that particular situation. So talking to talking to people and getting getting people involved, and the easiest way to do that, I think, is getting involved with an accelerator. Is there a good place to find mentors? Like, how do you find? Because I think I think the there's like one of the things I struggle with because I don't really have. I think of everyone as my mentor because like I learn from everyone. I, I learn from books. Like I, I even like this conversation. I like think like oh, if this guy was my mentor, like what is he trying to tell me? But like. How do you find someone and say, hey, do you want a part-time job that doesn't give you a lot? And then, like, couple that with, there's, like, a Dalai Lama quote I always think about when I interact with everyone, anyone, which is, uh, friendship based on status is contingent on status. So, like, if you have a, have, if you have a friend that is your friend because you're wealthy, then when you're not wealthy, that friend will no longer be your friend, essentially. Uh, versus if you have a friend based on the friend's merits themselves, like who they are, who they are as a person, then that it weathers all the storms. So then I, I always wonder, like, how do you find people with certain knowledge and personality that you guys would do well together, but at the same time maintain that aspect of wanting to know them on a personal level so that it can maintain through that? Yeah, it, it, like, these are things that I think about, but I don't have good answers. They're, they're, good answers are tough, but I would say um, I've worked where I've worked in situations where I bring friends on to work situations that rarely works out because you're the reason that your friends the 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 your 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 interaction with other people and the 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 let's let's call the term friendship right whatever that means it could mean a lot of different things but the that that can be based on a core thing whatever that core thing is maybe this guy's funny right so you kind of you laugh every time you're with him uh so you overlook he's kind of a dick to somebody you know what i mean like it's <laughs> There's there's pros and cons to every relationship, and so there's the the pros generally um, soften the cons, right? And so if you're friends with somebody first, and then you try to work with them, put them in a work context, you're gonna have a hard time because the reason you're friends with them has nothing to do with why they're working on something, right? And so the cons, their their ability to execute and all of that stuff, if it's if it's not up to expectations, you're gonna have a real juxtaposition there you're gonna have a problem and so you know the people that uh, that are on the team kind of came from the other way around they had interest in what we were doing and what i was doing of dangerous things and they have interest in in continuing that with vivo key they have expertise that they are already good at that's why they're in those positions and then they're also on top of that cool people like you totally can get along with them and you can build a friendship but the core thing the core reason why they're in your life in, in at all in the beginning is because they're either interested in what you're doing, right, uh, and passionate about it already, and, and and they have the skill set. Those are the those are the critical things for the business aspect of of having them in your in your orbit, right. Um, if on top of that they're a terrible person, then look for somebody else. <laughs> but if they're reasonable, right, you know they they have a sense of humor or whatever whatever it is that can make you uh, want to be in a room with them, you can work out problems with them, then that's great. But that's the last thing. That's the last hurdle, right? The first hurdles are, do they fit in these positions? And and typically, you find those people because they do. So I would say it's much easier to make friends with people that have common passions um, and and the skill sets that make sense than it is to bring a friend into and try to force them into a position where that works well. I mean, the place to find mentors, like I would, I would really um, start talking to local angel groups. Uh, not just investor, angel investors individual, but although that can work, go to groups, like see, see if you can attend a group angel investor group meeting, maybe not to pitch, but just to go there to 
ask about how they're operating in that in that location. See if there's anybody that you can get along with. Um, see if you can ask some questions, just like about how angel investing works and how you know business questions and things. People, the angel investors and people in general want to feel like they're important, right? And that they have value and they have knowledge, and they do. So find people that aren't too busy or annoyed at your presence and ask them questions, right? Like these are. The, and, and you might find out of a room full of 30 angel investors that a couple of them might have uh, the time to, to to chat with you and feel like they're uh, involved. Because a lot of times angel investors are retired or they're, you know, they've they built their business and now they're uh, kind of off doing other things. But, you know, they were good at it. So they kind of probably part of them misses it a bit. And it would be fun for them to kind of mentor you to a degree. Just be socially aware of like when you're starting to annoy them. <laughs> And just back off. <laughs> Where are you going in the next like couple of years? Like, is there like some big projects that you're about you're cracking through? The project as always is to keep cracking into society as a as to see this as a valuable asset for a personal asset. So, you know, our digital identities are becoming more and more important, and they will continue to do so. Right. So the reality is, the implants started as a convenience thing, but it has evolved to be a a security thing and a, a um, practicality thing. So, you know, getting getting people to the point where they get that and and uh, more importantly, integration partners get that is really the next couple of years, right? So, increasing the utility of of such a uh, a device. I mean, I've I've lived since 2005 with with one or more implanted in my body, and I I realize the benefits every day. I use it every day. I don't really think about it unless I'm thinking about it. And and people that I mean, there's a the, the best video that I got in recent in recent time, the recent last few months, was a, a I had a crew, a TV crew, come out and film in the lab, and you know we we talked about the uh, utility and I showed them kind of the different things you could use it with and everything, and then I asked them if they had you know key cards for their for their offices or whatever, and they said yeah here's one, so. I took the key card and I was able to read it and I said, "Oh, we can we can clone this to one of our implants. We can you can actually put your badge on an implant and then go beep beep and like get get into the building and you don't even have to talk to the building people about it because the cards that they chose to use were not secure and we can totally copy them. And you know, two two out of the three crew members that came were like, "Let's do it." <laughs> so they got implants and then the the woman that got the implant, she filmed herself. She walked up to the door. And there's the reader there, and she's filming it. She goes, okay, we're going to try it. And she waves her hand, it beeps, and the door unlatches, and she goes through. And her, she just lets out this involuntary squeal, like, oh, my God. And everybody's like, oh, my God, it worked. Like that kind of pure joy at, like, the magic of how this works is kind of the point. Like, you do kind of feel a bit magical when you literally don't have a key or you're not managing anything. You just feel like I just waved my hand now like I'm magically let into the door that's always been such a pain point in the past, right? Oh, I forgot my badge or it's in the bag or, you know, like this, this annoyance has turned into this magical experience. And that's kind of the whole the whole thing. That's kind of why what I live for is seeing stuff like that. And, and, and people that, that do uh, go through this thing and they use it for the first few times are just like, oh, this is amazing. So getting people to understand that that's part of the experience of, of kind of augmenting the human machine, as it were, versus just like, I got another widget that I have to carry around with me that does a thing for me, right? That's that's what I'm working on in the next two years, to make that magical experience extend beyond just the doors and you know, whatever into everything like securing your actual life. And, and hopefully, like I said, working with um, payment systems. So you can have that same experience at the store, you know, like beep, pay for your stuff, walk, like 
that's uh, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to being able to do that here in the states. It's um, contactless in the states is lagging behind kind of the rest of the world, but it it is improving. Yeah, it kind of makes me wish I could get my cell phone in my hand so I don't have to carry anything wherever I go. The whole thing, and it's actually come up quite a bit. People are like, what are you are you going to implant your cell phone or something? And reality is, no, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> um, and the and the reason for that is that. Um, like we work really hard to to ensure that obsolescence is a not really a factor, and we do that by um, making implants that adhere to several standards. Uh, so NFC standard, RFID ISO one five six nine three or one four four three A standards. You know, standards they last; they are around a long time, and that's the point. So technology moves very quickly, but standards and people and applications move slowly. And uh, that's that's uh, I like to point out like. If you're talking about implanting your phone, the important part it would be to implant a headset, for example, because you know Bluetooth headset that you bought in 1998 will still work with the latest iPhone because of the standard, right? So a phone itself will evolve. LTE networks, I think the 2G network is actually being shut down now. So implanting a device chock full of constantly evolving technology like a cell phone would be a bad idea. But I do. I do think there's a possibility that the interfaces for that device uh, might one day become implantable. So the audio interface, for example, based on a standard that's going to be around for a long time. Uh, there might be visual standards that are coming. Um, like let's say one day in the future, HDMI has a wireless standard, right? So there's the HDMI standard, and then on top of that, a wireless standard. Like Wi-Fi B is still around, right? Decades later. So. Imagine a future where you have HDMI, you know, visual HDMI wireless standard come out, and you're like, great, now there's an implant that I can actually use to interact with and, and my, my phone, see things, or however that works based on a standard. It would make sense to, to consider building an implant that can interact with your connectivity device, your thing that you probably are going to get rid of in two years' time and replace. So the phone might actually devolve into just this kind of brick that you keep in your pocket or in close proximity to your to yourself, but uh, but the way that you interact with that brick will change fundamentally. But you could use it as like a belt buckle. That way, you're, right? Exactly. I just don't want yeah. things in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could use it, and it becomes the, the the fact that you now the way that you interact with that device changes fundamentally means that the way that you manage that device and take it with you can change fundamentally. Mm-hmm. So, for people who want to kind of follow along and see how things go for you, is there are there key areas that people can go to follow along? That was a very that was a very circular thing to say, but like. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say, oh man. So I have amal.net, A-M-A-L.net. I have dangerousthings.com and vivuki.com. I'm not a heavy Twitter user. Uh, sometimes I'll tweet stuff out at Amal, but yeah, I don't know. LinkedIn, Facebook, just Google. <laughs> it's hard to say at this point, but definitely the the thing that will be going through the most amount of change in the next few months is vivuki.com. Are there good primers for people who want to learn more about? There, there's a TED talk that I gave a while back that kind of covers uh, up into dangerous things, but uh, it, it's probably a good primer. You could just Google that. It's Amel TED TEDx. It comes up immediately, or implants or whatever. I mean, this Google's a very nice um, global search engine that works pretty well to identify me. Thankfully, because my name is unique, right? Amel Grastra is a pretty unique name. I don't think there's a, another one on the planet. So my my parents had foresight into the internet and Google. But other than that, you know, I guess I'll probably be redoing Amel.net sometime soon. It's a blog structure at the moment, and I just posted to it the other day. And then I'm, my previous post was like from 2015 or something. So 
it was like not very active. But so for people who are starting out themselves, like people who are thinking about making a biotech, science-related type, deep tech type thing, or just wanting to get involved, do you have any any advice or any places you you suggest they go? Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a in particular RFID. There's a Facebook group RFID implantees, um, but there's a forum. Like in general, there's a there's a forum. Uh, for biohackers called biohack.me and there's going to be some new resources coming out here pretty soon where we're actually talking about um, creating kind of a, a mix of a biohacker directory but also a biohacker uh, for lack of a better word consortium that is focused on safety and uh, actually dealing with like lobbying and things because there are states like georgia and i think tennessee that have already passed like anti-rfid laws and stuff about implants, like RFID implants, uh, making them illegal uh, for employers, for example, to offer them to employees or incentivize it in any way. Um, it just It's becoming – we're in a place now where you know biohacking has grown, the number of people involved in different areas for everything from DNA modification to implant creation is is becoming more of a thing. And so we're, we're starting to – but up and interact with regulatory agencies like the FDA and, and things like that. So it's going, it's because we're going through the growth, uh, growing pains of becoming more legit. So there's, there's, there are, there will be things happening. You can just kind of keep abreast of them um, through Google and uh, biohack.me and Facebook. I mean, just, it's going to be, you know, kind of uh, messy in the beginning, kind of distributed and dynamic, but it will solidify eventually. Thank you for joining us today with Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell This Year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.